Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. Well, good morning. And a belated Merry Christmas to all of you here. Um, we're actually going to leave our Christmas series at this time. We're going to go back into our First Corinthians series. And uh, as we go back into this, and we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 today, um, I want to talk about two problems that are not going to go away in 2021. You know, you hear a lot of people say this, they go, oh, I can't wait till 2020 ends, it's been a terrible year, and it's kind of like, hey, there's going to be this great hope, uh, right around the corner in another week or so, everything's going to be like all good. And there's, there's two things that aren't going to go away. And the first problem that's not going to go away uh, for us as believers is we've got determined enemies. Um, you know, I think I mentioned this before, but the Communist Party in China has decided to revise the Bible to fit in more with their national objectives. On the left there, I can't read uh, Chinese characters or anything, but this was is, is actually the directive that says that all publications in the country have got to line up with the Communist Party's uh, directives. And so the, this revised Bible is part of that. And you guys all know that story in John chapter 8, right, where they, this woman is like taken in adultery, and they bring her to Jesus, and they go, well, don't you think we're supposed to stone her? Isn't that what, that what the law is telling us to do? And if you remember the story in the Bible, Jesus says, uh, hey, anybody who's without sin, you guys cast the first stone. And then they just kind of like are ashamed of themselves, for their self-righteous attitude and they just kind of walk away and then jesus goes i'm not condemning you either and he goes go and leave your life of sin so he's really compassionate to this woman well in the new uh, communist chinese version of the bible what happens is the crowd melts away and then jesus says to the woman he says i too am a sinner but if the law could only be executed by men without blemish the law would be dead and then he personally stones her to death now, does that have a little whiff of Satan behind it right there? I mean, that's, that's blasphemous. But this is the part of their new revised uh, communist version of the Bible that they've got there to line up with their idea that the law is the ultimate thing and the state's authority must always be obeyed. And uh, I'm thinking, you know, in 2021, the forces uh, of the enemy that come against the church are not going to relent. I mean, Satan is, is, is still, uh, you know, prowling around, seeking whom he may devour. And he's got a lot of unwitting minions doing his business right here in the world. So, determined enemies. And the second thing is what I'm going to call introverted lethargy. And I just pulled this quote out of the newspaper the other day. Um, this is a, a woman who's like a, uh, she's a teaching assistant at a major university. And she said, She's talking about, you know, as we go through this whole pandemic thing and we're kind of like, you know, drawn apart from each other and everything. She said, I started losing the energy to go outside or see friends. It becomes a lot more difficult and intense, a lot more of a journey and a challenge to actually see people rather than just sort of pull up and do nothing. You know, I think inherent in every one of us is kind of a laziness. There's a kind of, um, eh, you know, I just much rather sit around and watch NFL football, Netflix and stuff, and not make the effort to be with anybody else. And, you know, it's just much 
much easier that way. Uh, Nan and I were up in Wisconsin the last few days to celebrate Christmas with her family up there. And um, my daughter, Amy, who is the soul of hospitality, the hospitality queen, she said, you know, Dad, we, we always used to have these Packers parties, you know, the Green Bay Packers would be on there, practically a religion up in Milwaukee, right? And uh, she said, we used to have these Packers parties for the Packers games, and we'd invite the neighbors and friends and everything. And, you know, with the pandemic, we, we couldn't do that this year. And then she said, you know what? I'm kind of enjoying this. She said, I don't have to clean my house. You know, just it's just much easier to just to kick back and be by yourself. And that kind of, you know, it's much easier to not open the libraries, right? You don't have to deal with people. It's much easier not to have youth sports. It's much easier to not visit the sick, you know, and so we have, and now we can believe that it's our civic duty to kind of, you know, not do these things for people anymore. And I think it, this is just kind of, you know, there's something in all of our hearts that just is, there's this lazy person, man, I can see it in myself, where I'm just like, yeah, just, I don't want to be bothered by other people, you know, and so we got these two things that come against us. And, uh, you know, it's like Proverbs 26, 13 says, the lazy man says, there's a lion in, this, in the road. A fierce lion is in the streets. You know, we don't want to take the risks, you know. And so it's just like there's something in us there that isn't, that isn't quite right that we've got to battle against. And 1 Corinthians chapter 11 gives us a couple of principles here to remember in 2021. Now, if you know anything about, like, church history, you know that 1 Corinthians 11 has been kind of a flashpoint in church history. There's a couple of topics in here that people have, Christians have fought over and even literally had wars over and killed each other about. Uh, the first half of the chapter deals with uh, head covering for women. That's not the one that caused people to get all mad. The second part of the chapter uh, talks about the Lord's Supper. And people have gotten just, it's, you know, it's fired up and battling over details about this for centuries. And I think we've missed the two principles, or two just general principles that we really ought to be concentrating on that come through loud and clear in this chapter. And the first uh, one is the idea of headship. Headship. I don't know if you ever used that term or heard that term, but Paul says this in uh, chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. He says, I'm so glad that you always keep me in your thoughts and that you're following the teachings I passed on to you. But there's one thing I want you to know. The head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. You know, this is something we're going, whoa, whoa. I mean, we're Americans, right? And our idea is like every man for himself. We're all individuals and everything like that. But this idea of headship is an interesting thing. And it's, it, what it's talking about here is like a hierarchy, right? So it's like there's like submission and there's like this idea that there's a flow chart, there's a boss, you know, and it says even in the Godhead, even in the Trinity, it's like the Son submits to the Father. And then as believers, we submit to, to Jesus Christ. He's our Lord, He's our Savior, He's our, our King, right? And it talks about there's an order even in like the home and stuff like this. Structure, it's talking about there's, there's going to be some rules. It isn't just that we can do our own thing. Uh, and there's responsibilities. So it's like headship is like, okay, there's a kind of a leadership, 
but there's also a caring and like a protection that takes place and a consideration. And it brings us together in, in a united purpose. And it's like, we, I think the image that probably comes out right here is the idea of the military. Um, this is a book that just uh, came out in the last year called Did You Kill Anyone? where Scott Beauchamp talks about his experience in the military. And um, he talks about it. He's going like, you know, I'm glad to be out now and I don't have to deal with them, with that thing. But he talked about how, in a way, it was kind of a refreshing thing to be in the military. And I think a lot of people have, have said this. He goes, my time in the military was a brief respite from the emptiness of individual random pleasure-seeking. You know, it was, like his, it was like, this was refreshing in the sense, it wasn't just his life kind of going at random, just, oh, this is fun, oh, that's fun, and no purpose, really, to speak of. He said, I miss, you know, now that he's out, I miss the ritual and hierarchy and tradition, all of which offered a sense of permanence that one's actions have meaning and solidity across time. He said, there was something substantial there, and we were moving in the same direction and it gave us like a real purpose of you know in my life finally after just kind of randomly looking for just for fun and just feeling kind of unfulfilled by that um, he said the most withering thing that the drill sergeants could ever say to you when they got in your face was do you think you're an individual I mean, they were trying to say look it it isn't just you but we're trying to mold you together because we're going into battle and this is, gonna, this is a serious purpose, and we're going to have some structure now that's going to make that really possible for it to happen. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the Band of Brothers. You know, there was the HBO series. But I'm reading the book that it was based on uh, by Stephen Ambrose, and he talks about how, how this Band of Brothers came together. This is World War II, and um, here's all these millions of young men drafted into the Army and, you know, into the military. And they offered these guys, they go like, look at for 50 bucks more pay a month, we want some guys who want to be in the paratroopers. Guys who are going to jump out of airplanes behind enemy lines, super dangerous, but very important, especially when we invade Europe. And so these guys just, just attracted a number of young men who are going like, you know, I want, I want to be better. I want to do something that's great. And so they brought these guys together, and this was uh, the first place where they, where they started training them was this Camp Tacoa in northern Georgia. And you can see in the picture right there, there's this big, big hill there. They called it Mount Kurahi. And this became really big part of their training where it was like three miles to get to the top of this thing and then three miles down. And from the first day on, they were going, okay, everybody, we're going to run up this mountain. And we're going to run down, you know, three miles up and then three miles down. And then these guys are like, ah. and then we're going to do it again, you know. And, they, and this thing just became their focus, right? And after going through a couple of weeks of just being brutalized in this running up and down a mountain, this one day, they, after they went through the other training and stuff, they said, okay, no running today. And so it's like, great. And so they sat them down for this huge spaghetti dinner. And they ate this huge spaghetti dinner, and after the spaghetti dinner was over, they went, okay, we're going to run the mountain. And so these guys are running up the mountain, carrying this heavy stuff, and, and they're getting pushed, and they run ambulances along with them. These guys are puking out their guts as they're going up there, and, down, and they're going like, look it, if you can't make it, we'll give you, 
we'll let you, you know, the ambulance take you. And some men took them up on it. When they got to the bottom after that six-mile run, it was just agony. All the guys who took the ambulance ride, they kicked them out of the, the group. They were demanding standards. See, that's what, that's what it means sometimes with hedging. We, hey, I don't want to do this. I don't think I can do this. Okay, you're, you know, it, it, they pushed them. They pushed them. Even the time when they finally got leave, all the guys who came back late, they, they kicked them out of the group. They never were late again. They're going, if you're going to go into battle and you're going against a determined enemy, we just want people who are willing to come under this authority. And that molded them together into a, a band of brothers that was unbeatable when they went, up, when they went uh, and attacked the mainland of Europe. Uh, during the part of the whole D-Day thing. Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, he talks about that headship that's, we're under the Lord right here, and then it's, and then, you know, and we've got these authorities too. And he says, a woman should wear a covering on her head as a sign that she's under authority. So he's going, okay, we got this symbolic thing, okay? And even in the Middle East today, like this is a current picture from Iran, uh, head covering for women is still something that is practiced in some places. Um, but Paul points out, and this is interesting, it's a unique place in all of Paul's writing. At the end of the section, verse 16, he says, but if anyone wants to argue about this, I simply say that we have no other custom than this, and neither do God's other churches. And so Paul's going, look, he's, not, he's saying this isn't a law. This isn't a generalized principle or rule. He says, this is just the way we do things now. And so he's, he's advocating this as a custom. It's the only time Paul ever does that, where he just goes like, look, it, it's just the way we are right now here in 45 AD or whatever it is in where we're at. Because in Europe at that time, in Greece and you know, in Corinth, that was the custom there. And people just went, okay, this is the way we're going to do it. You know, it's, you know, even today, we still have headship kind of customs. And if you look at that picture on the left, one of them is like in court. And I've been at a couple of trials, you know, being in juries and stuff like that. And the bailiff comes in there uh, before the judge gets in and says, all rise. And so all of us stood up as a sign of the fact that, that the judge, that she had authority when she walked in that that room and she herself was wearing a robe as a sign of authority and if you were to enroll at Lutheran West what you would see is there's some signs there so we teachers dress in a certain way because we're under the authority of the administration and they say here's how you're supposed to dress you know and <clears throat> you would address me as Mr. Fenske because you would be that would be that's one of the signs of being under that authority in the year 2020 when you're going to school at my school. And so we have these various, these various symbols still there. But the principle of headship is something that's universal. That's still important. And you know what? It has results. Um, this guy over here, this Captain Herbert Sobol, he was one of the uh, regimental commanders in, that the Band of Brothers were under. And they hated this guy. They absolutely hated him. I mean, they were, and they had their reasons. But they said this later. Captain Sobol had seen to it that Easy Company had spent months of training at night 
forced night marches cross country, through woods, night compass problems, every conceivable problem of troop movement and control of troops at night. As a result, the men were completely at ease working at night. Indeed, some of them insisted they could see better in the dark than in the day. And some of these men said, we hated that guy. And we even talked about how we would kill him when we went into battle in friendly fire. It was, it was that bad. But later on, they, re they didn't do that, by the way. But later on, they realized, many of them, they owed their lives as they went into battle uh, to this man because of the way that he pushed them. And that's the way headship works sometimes. We chafe under authority. I chafe under authority. I'm sure you do at times as well. But the Lord's going, look at him, trying to get you ready because you're facing a relentless enemy. And you need to be listening to what I say, says Jesus, and submitting to me. You know, you can even see this with the Browns, right? Got to talk about the NFL. And, uh, you know, on the left was Freddie Kitchens. And Freddie Kitchens was a guy who was like, hey, I'm just one of your friends. You know, I'm side by side with you. I'm one of your buddies. He did not have good success. And the guy on the right, Kevin Stefanski, that's not his style. He's going, I'm the leader here. I'm the boss. There's headship right here. And we're going to do it my way. And the record shows that it works. You know, the second principle beside that headship is brotherhood. And some things weren't going well in this church. And uh, Paul says this, when you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you, hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. See, the way they did this then was they, had, they would get together probably on a weekly basis, and they would uh, have a big meal together. You know, it's kind of like uh, when we, you know, at, at Easter time, we have that cafe service. And we meet together here and we share food. And it's all part of us getting together as brothers and sisters in the Lord. But what was happening here was people bringing their own food. And some of these guys had a lot of money and they're bringing all this good stuff. And they're just chowing their way through it and plowing through. And some of them were even getting drunk. And then there were others who were just bringing, they just had very little. They were poor. They got shamed through this whole thing. It was embarrassing to them. And there was this, this kind of like class system that was going on here where the, the rich versus the poor and things like that. And Paul goes in verse 22, What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will, will not praise you for this. And then as part of this, they would also celebrate the Lord's Supper. And Paul's going like, this is appalling. And then right after this, he launches into those words that are very familiar that we always say when we do the communion. And Doug will be doing them later on when we do it as well. And he says, for I pass on to you what I receive from the Lord himself. So Paul got this personally from Jesus. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. <clears throat> in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes. 
What's going on here? This is, uh, Jesus was celebrating Passover with his disciples. And as part of Passover, this, the Lord's Supper emerges. And let me explain. In the Passover, there were four cups. Four cups of wine at various times during the Passover. And they all had kind of names that were traditionally were, were used, <clears throat> um, you know, according to the, the rabbinic traditions. Sanctification, deliverance, redemption, hope. And these are, this is based on Exodus chapter 6, where God made promises to his people uh, when he was ready to take them out of Egypt. Okay, so it's a celebration of their deliverance and their being set free from Egypt and coming into becoming a nation. So the first cup was the promise, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And that was fulfilled when the plague started, because as soon as the plague started against the Egyptian king to get his attention, <clears throat> excuse me, the forced labor of the Israelites stopped. All those terrible burdens that they were being forced to do at that time. And so there was a rescue at that time. So they, they remembered that and they celebrated that. And then the second cup was based on the second promise, I will free you from being slaves to them. So there was a deliverance from the slavery and that occurred when he brought them out of Egypt. Finally, the Pharaoh says, I gotta let these guys go. And they, two million of them marched out and now they, were, they weren't slaves anymore. Then the third cup was the cup of redemption. And that's the third promise. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And so this takes place when they cross the Red Sea and then the Egyptians try to follow them and they get drowned there. And that's the end of the Egyptian uh, power against Israel. And now they are totally like redeemed. They are set free. This third cup is the cup that Jesus drank and passed around in the Lord's Supper. It was a cup of redemption, totally being set free from the Egyptians. And then finally, there was a fourth cup, which is a cup of hope. And the fourth promise is, I'll take you as my own people and I'll be your God. So he's going, you are gonna be my special nation. It was a promise that they were gonna have their own identity under the Lord and their own structure and, and under his headship or under his family. Now you see what, what Jesus is doing right here? He's going, boys, for 1,750 years, you have been celebrating Passover and remembering Moses and remembering coming out of Egypt. But he's going, you know what? From now on, you're gonna see it in a new light and you're gonna be celebrating me. It's gonna be about me and about me delivering you and making you into my family. And so the way I, I see it here in this chapter, and this is why he's bringing up the Lord's Supper, the Passover connection is finally being made clear to them. Jesus announced at the Lord's Supper the fulfilled meaning of the ancient Passover. The Passover was like a prediction of what was going to come, of much greater things. He was paying a horrific price in redeeming us from death, from sin, and from the power of the evil one and has now brought us into his eternal family. Now, can you see in the light of that how offensive it was to the Lord that these people are mistreating one another at the, in the church of Corinth? 
and they're just being so mean to each other and selfish and like you know making divisions and stuff like this he's going that's just in the light of what's happening here how can you how can you do that he says here uh, so anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord that's why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup for if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ you're eating and drinking God's judgment on yourself he's going like I paid you know this price I'm gonna be going to the cross and shedding my blood because I wanted to take all you individual people and bring you all together into my family and I'm doing all these great things right here and then you don't even recognize the fact that of what I have done and brought this together saying examine yourselves what what do you who are you really who's you know who's your Lord what have I done for you remember that that's why he says many of you are weak and sick and some have even died now was this because uh, some people didn't even have enough food to get the nutrition like he's talking about here and they're just being ignored by the others in their group or was this just God directly judging them because he's going this is so terrible what's going on here and as you and I just sit here this morning and we look around what we're seeing here is all kinds of individuals from different walks of life different ages you know different just different groups and the Lord paid a price to bring us all together. And that's what we're remembering. Oh, Jesus, what you did to, to do this. And these are my brothers and these are my sisters right here. You know, just a, a couple of things. Doug sent me this article a couple of weeks ago called Going to Hell with Ted Haggard. And there's this pastor out in, um, in Colorado, Michael Cheshire. And he was meeting with a, a friend out there. His friend's an atheist. And as usual, they're discussing spiritual things. They were in this restaurant or bar or something. And on the TV, there was a, a news story about Ted Haggard. And if you know who this guy was, he was a disgraced minister out there involved in a big sex scandal. And he had this like, big, big time ministry and stuff. And the atheist guy points to the screen. And he goes like, that's the reason why I'm never going to become a Christian. And so this other pastor, this Michael Cheshire, said, he says, hey, you know, the rest of us Christians aren't like that, you know, we, we don't do that kind of stuff, you know. And he's, the atheist guy goes, see, you just proved my point. He says, okay, he says, you've been telling me that God's grace is sufficient for anything. And that even though you're a, you know, a sinner and you're flawed, that he's willing to forgive you. But he says, see how you treat this guy? He says, the guy's wife has forgiven him. The guy's kids have forgiven him. He says, but you, rest of you Christians, you're still looking down your noses at him and despising him, and you refuse to forgive him. You're so inconsistent. He says, that's why I'm never going to believe. And, you know, this, Michael Cheshire said, I was so ashamed of myself and just the attitude of self-righteousness and just looking down on others because of their sins, you know, other, other believers. And then he got to know T uh, Ted Hanger, and he, he walked through this thing with him. And his own friends, Christian friends, started rejecting him for doing that. How can you hang out with that guy? What's your problem? They would say. And he said this in the article. He said, it would do some Christians good.
to stay home one weekend and watch the entire DVD collection of HBO's Band of Brothers. Marinate in it. Take notes. Write down words like loyalty, friendship, and sacrifice. Understand the phrase, never leave a fallen man behind. You know, as, as people who are part of that body of Christ that he's talking about there in 1 Corinthians 11, we, we need to understand that about each other. We're, we're a band of brothers and sisters. And we've been called out of this world through this huge sacrifice, called into a, a, a body of Christ. And how many times do we just get mad at each other about the smallest things? We, you know, you see this happen in every church where people just get into a snit about stuff. I don't like this and I don't like that. And they won't forgive one another. And they just part ways. It's such a shame. And there was this other story that I saw was just great. I was reading this in the news about Indra Nui. I don't know if you ever heard of her, but uh, she became the CEO of Pepsi-Cola Corporation. Huge, huge corporation, right? And uh, she came home the day that she got the phone call saying, you're the CEO. She gets home after a long day of work. It's 10 o'clock. And she comes in the door and she goes, guess what? Her mother was living with her at the time, right? She goes, guess what, mom? And her mom goes, before you say anything, we don't have any milk here. Go to the store and get some milk. So she's going, you've got to be kidding me, you know? So she goes to the store. She gets the milk. She comes home. She slams the milk down on the counter. And she goes, mom, I just was appointed CEO of PepsiCo. And her mom said this, what are you talking about? When you walk in that door, just leave that crown in the garage because you are the wife, the daughter, the daughter-in-law, and the mother of the kids, and that's all I want to talk about. Anything else, just leave it in the garage. Don't even try this with me anymore. Does she sound like a mom? That sounds exactly like my mom, you know? But don't you see the wisdom of mom? I mean, she's going like, you know what? You've got a lot of accomplishments. You're a big shot now. And Indra Nui was a big shot. I mean, she made $17 million through the years that she was CEO there. She was named the second most powerful woman in the world by Fortune magazine. You know, she, and she did fantastic things with that company. But you know what? Those things don't matter. You know, all of our accomplishments and our titles and the money that we make, you know what it's all about? In the body of Christ, it's like this. It's like, it's the service, right? That's the stuff. It's the humble stuff. It's taking care of the kids. It's like being the, being the spouse. It's like, it's like, you know, looking out for one another's needs and laying down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And that's the stuff that's going to last. And, and Jesus is saying, I'm bringing into, into this family not to be a big shot, but to, but to be a servant. And you know what, Indra Nui, just a couple years ago, she laid down that job because her mother needed somebody to care for her at home now. And, and she, she learned that lesson. And you know what, um, that's why Paul says in verse 31, if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we're judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. He's going, you know what, sometimes we end up with troubles in our lives because the Lord's trying to get our attention. And he's going, look, at I want you to remember, who's, who's your authority? You know, you're not, you're not running the show yourself. You're under the Lord and those people he puts in your life to, 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 to lead. 
And he's going, we've got to learn to be humble and we've got to learn to serve. And in the final analysis, you know, we're just a band of brothers and sisters serving Jesus Christ. And I just close with this. You know, this was a description that Stephen Ambrose said of these guys in the band of brothers who'd climb those hills and puke their guts out, and trained under that hard, hard task but molded together. They fought too often with other GIs. You know, they were like you and me. There was, there was rancor and there was like bickering. But in training and combat, they learned selflessness and found the closest brotherhood they ever knew. They discovered that in war, men loved, who loved life would give their lives for them. And if that's true of a bunch of guys who were called out of the, the army to be paratroopers, to fight in a, in a great war, then how much more true is that of you and me who've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ? We are the ones who have been made into a family, a band of brothers and sisters under his headship. Uh, let's pray. Lord, it's just uh, our, we have grateful hearts and thankful hearts today as we, uh, we realize and we remember and we're going to be remembering as we partake in the Lord's Supper of this, of this fearsome, horrific price that you paid, Lord Jesus, to call us into a family of believers, a family that's made up of people who are so different from one another and sometimes so hard to get along with. And yet you've called us to sacrifice, to come under your lordship, to be loyal, uh, to be humble, to serve. And Lord, we just uh, pray that you would keep that before our eyes. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.